Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Wait, is this posting like next week? This is a bonus episode, you guys, and I cannot get it together. So this will come out. (laughs) It's okay. It's a bonus one. It's a bonus one. So this is actually not our podcast. We were on another podcast, the Thriving Special Families podcast with Crystal Sanford. And we're really excited to share this. We were on her podcast on September 22nd. It was actually a live podcast. So very different from what we usually do. We were on video, which I think I actually got Logan to to nap during that time, which was, I I was on video, which is a change. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can watch it. It's on YouTube. Obviously her podcast, you can look it up. And then also her website has a link to the podcast and then the YouTube, which is exciting. But yeah, we were super stoked to be on her podcast. She's actually also a consultant with Sanford Autism Consulting. And, you know, they do a lot of different things. So it was nice to be able to kind of talk to somebody that understands compensatory education, which is what we were talking to her about. Yeah, we just dove deep in, you know, we've talked about comp ed on our podcast, you know, a number of different times. This one was specifically talking about kind of like tips and tricks for getting compensatory education in this time of COVID, which is you know, it's interesting. We've talked to attorneys from other states. We've talked to educators from other states. And it is a bit different, you know, how it's being litigated. But, you know, the basic principles of comp ed remain because they're under the IDEA, so federally. So we kind of broke that down a little and gave some tips and tricks. So uh, we hope that you go and check this out, whether you listen to it. Well, you are listening to it. On we're, our podcast. we're forcing you to listen to, to it now. <laughs> we're forcing if you wanted you to, to see the video, to see us on video, which you rarely do, you can go to her YouTube page or her, her website, and we'll link this all in the show notes. So we hope you enjoy us on the Thriving Special Families podcast, Compensatory Education, Where Are We Now? There's different ways. Like for YouTube, you'd subscribe to her channel. For podcasts, if you're on Apple Podcasts, you could also subscribe so you get it weekly. There's so many mm-hmm. different ways, so many different reminders. Yeah. And uh, yep. we think it's a great resource for you guys. So yep. hopefully you enjoy it. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Did your child experience significant learning loss during school closures? Do you believe that your child has in some way not received their free and appropriate education? If you answer yes to these questions and you are in the right place, welcome again to another episode of Thriving Special Families. I'm your host, Crystal Sanford, and I have the pleasure of having two wonderful guests with me today. We have uh, special education attorneys, Amanda Salogi and Vicki Brett. Hello, ladies. Hi, Crystal. Hi. Thank you so much for being here as we discuss our topic today, compensatory education, where are we now? Families, if you're engaging with us with the podcast, then welcome. If you are watching live, we are so happy to have you. Feel free to leave your comments or questions in the comment section, and we'll do our best to answer those along the way. 
And lastly, always remember that the information that is shared is for your informational purposes only. If you're in need of medical or legal advice, please do ask a professional in that area. So again, our topic today is compensatory education. And if you're not really sure what that means, we're going to dive into that today and let you know a little bit more about that and how that might apply to your child. Again, we're so happy to have our attorneys here today, Amanda. Amanda Sologi received her degree in child and adolescent development, specializing in education at California State University, Northridge, which is one of my alma maters. And uh, she also got her Juris Doctorate from Whittier Law School. While at Whittier Law School, Amanda was a fellow in the prestigious Center for Children's Rights Fellowship Program. And she served in the school's pro bono special education clinic and as a research editor of the Journal of Child and Family Advocacy. And then also we have Vicki Brett. Vicki was born and raised in Southern California. She attended UC Riverside and she received a Bachelor's of Art in political science with a minor in philosophy before becoming a very active Whittier Law School student and alumnus. And so I believe you guys both met there in law school at Whittier Law School. Yep. Awesome. Well, I really am one who values story and I really always want to honor and share more and hear more about people's stories. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what led you guys to become special education attorneys. Absolutely. So I kind of fell into it. I kind of fell into the area of law in general. I really thought I was going to be a special education teacher. I was on that path. I worked in college at a um, one in a million full inclusion elementary school where I had the privilege of working with kids with special needs and particularly one student that just, you know, melted my heart, little boy with Down syndrome, who, you know, one of the best memories I have of him is we would work on one of his goals of three word sentences. And one day he was really struggling with behaviors and we were trying to re-address it, redirect him. And he looks up at me and he says, I love you. And it was such an amazing moment to see the progress being made and the connection. And the way I felt about these students, I knew I wanted to work with these students, but I saw firsthand so many struggles that families had. The school I worked at was a charter school that it had a wait list of hundreds of kids long. You know, and these kids were lucky to be there because it was full inclusion and not all families get that benefit. And I kind of figured out through, you know, my aunt's special ed teacher and we're talking with the families that I worked with that this was just not something that was an easy path that a lot of teachers face a lot of red tape and are only able to do so much. So it just kind of fell into place that I found out it was an area of law and I'd always been told to go to law school and I fought it and yet it kind of fell into my lap. And now, you know, I'm so grateful for it because I do love working with these families and I'm able to do it in a way that I feel was kind of made for me in a way. And in law school, I met Vicki and we were able to, you know, kind of build our practice from there. Oh, that's beautiful. And Vicki, tell us a little bit more about what led you to law. Yeah, I actually, I had a bit of a different path. Uh, I um, have a cousin on the spectrum. So I grew up kind of knowing a little bit about special education, IEPs and things like that. But I had gone to law school, I was going to be an environmental law attorney. I'm dating myself by saying, you know, an Aaron Brockovich, if you will. And I had a fellowship with Orange County Coast Keeper, which was fabulous in my third year. But I realized It was just a lot more writing. I'm a people person and I speak Spanish as well. So 
I wasn't able to really use that as I had used it in prior internships that I'd had. So I'd been an intern at the public council's guardianship clinic. So I helped, you know, I was in the area of helping families. And I met Amanda. Well, we had gone to law school. She was a year below me. And we really got to know each other studying abroad in Spain. And she said, oh, I'm in this clinic we should have a class together. Why don't you join this class? And so I needed a couple units. I was like, for sure. And we ended up not even being in the same class. They pulled me from the special education clinic in LA to go to the Orange County. And I really fell in love with it. And the advisors there had their own boutique law firm. So they had hired me after law school. So I was doing special education. And then I briefly did a little bit of family law. Obviously, special education had my heart. And then Amanda and I came together seven years ago to start our own uh, law firm. And here we are. Wow. That's amazing. It's always so amazing to see how, you know, what they say, six, seven degrees of separation rights, like how yeah. we're all kind of connected. And although your stories were very different, it kind of led you to the same space now where you can support families in this powerful way. So that's really wonderful. You know, as we're going to talk today about compensatory education, and I know that's one of the features that you help and support families with, can you kind of help us have a working definition of what is compensatory education? Sure. So compensatory education is designed to put the student in the place they would have been had the student not been deprived of special education and related services. So essentially there's a violation of their free and appropriate public education. The student does not receive certain services and are now harmed in some way, whether it's they've regressed or they're unable to access their education. So the law has put this as a remedy that is designed to put this child back in the place they could have, should have been. So. We talk a lot about what can it be, and it can be a number of things. There's not, you know, one form of it, but the idea is that we're not just making up hours. We're really trying to put the child back in a place that they should have been. So if they should have been making progress, then they should be at that forward progress, not just back if they regress, not just back to where they were, but mm. also that forward progress. It's an equitable remedy. So it could take the form of educational services Mm -hmm. or reimbursement to the parent for providing private services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of two main categories that the parents are able to kind of visualize. And in the idea under uh, COVID, we have had some guidance from the Department of Education as to compensatory education in light of COVID. And the Department of Ed has essentially said that an award of compensatory education does not require a finding of negligence or fault. So because you know the COVID-19 pandemic and the required school closures are not the fault of the school district. And we hear that a lot by schools, like, hey, it's not our fault. Mm -hmm. However, it's still learning loss that occurred and the mm -hmm. child is still gonna be entitled to compensatory education. So it's gonna be a little bit different with regards to COVID. And that's really great for parents to know, as I know there are many parents who, you know, watch their child struggle, uh, you know, depending on the school district, maybe they did get access to some on in-person learning. Maybe they didn't, maybe not for all school year. One of our districts was closed the entire school year. They were online. So I know that's impacted children in many different ways. But my next question is, how do parents typically, or what are they doing to get access to compensatory education. We know that it's why it occurs because there is a learning loss or there is a false negligence. What do they need to do to get access to that? 
So I think in the context of COVID, we've had to think a little bit differently about comp ed. So as Amanda had alluded, at least here in California, the Department of Education had kind of outlined back in April 2020. <laughs> and we haven't had any new guidance, but the guidance was, you know, once those kiddos are back in essentially in person, you know, a school district can try to address the regression that the child may have had in I mean, we believe every single child regressed during the last year and a half. One of the ways that that can be done that a lot of times districts, even pre-COVID, relied on were assessments, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we have encouraged a lot of parents is to hold IEP meetings. Whether you have an annual at the beginning of the year or not, you make that request for that IEP meeting, you indicate all your concerns, you know, Mm -hmm. the regression and things like that, and you just straight up ask, what compensatory education are we going to have in order to get the child to where the child needs to be? So we've already seen that in a couple of the 30-day IEP meetings that we've had where they're offering additional speech and language, right? Mm -hmm. Speech and language online is just not what it was when it's in person. So we have seen some stuff from the districts willing to, you know, provide extra sessions. But then we've also seen the other side that maybe Amanda can talk a little bit about in terms of like us filing for compensatory education. Yeah. And so after school resumes in person, the IEP team has this discussion. And in some instances, the school, like Vicki said, is going to provide an offer. But just because they provide an offer doesn't mean that that's the only thing the parents can accept. In fact, I have a case right now where the school district off for 20 hours. And this is a student who didn't access anything for an entire school year. Clearly 20 hours is not sufficient for that yeah. child. So in the event where the school offers nothing or the event where the school offers something, but it's not adequate, parents have the same recourse as they would for any other violation or denial of faith. Unfortunately, that does mean going through some type of alternative dispute resolution, mediation, or due process. And it's going to be very similar to how they would remedy any dispute even, you know, prior to COVID. Um, Some schools are we've seen are doing a lot more to try to do alternative dispute resolutions. They're willing Mm -hmm. to talk with families about how to resolve. But we are seeing that we want to make sure that parents are very careful because in those discussions, there is a lot of talk about waivers of claims. And we want to make sure that parents aren't leaving things on the table. So if you're having those negotiations with the school district and they're saying, okay, we offered you 20 hours, you wanted 50. Okay. We're going to compromise and give you 40 or 35, but we want you to waive all the claims for the past two years. That may not be appropriate because there might be issues outside of COVID or maybe 40 hours really isn't enough. Maybe the 50 or even more is appropriate. Maybe there's other things that need to be resolved. So, you know, we are seeing that these alternative dispute resolutions sometimes are leaning in the favor of the school districts because they Mm -hmm. kind of hold that power. So if a family does proceed with a due process, one, they kind of have the leverage of being able to state their claims, not just to COVID related issues, but non COVID related issues. I just want us to catch for our parents who are just joining us. Welcome again to another episode of Thriving Special Families, where our topic today is compensatory education. Where are we now? And especially in the light of COVID. Um, And then also always know that our show is sponsored by Sanford Autism Consulting, helping you advocate for the education your child deserves. If you're in need of IEP resources, definitely check out our website, sdautismhelp.com backslash resources. 
So what I'm hearing from you ladies is that there are options that parents have if they believe that their child ha- are, is experiencing regression, if there was learning loss, especially in light of COVID. Uh, one is to, it sounds like, just start with an IEP meeting. Yep. You know, And that's uh, often what I tell parents as well as I advocate for parents is starting with the IEP meeting, seeing what kind of resolve you can bring at the IEP table is always a good point. And it's always nice also because you can get at least their offer in writing so that we know what they are willing to do and not do. And then you can decide how to move forward. And then it looks like alternative dispute resolution, mediation, these kinds of meetings might be an alternative might work for a parent, but then also knowing not to waive or release your rights, not to consent to things that you're not really 100% sure of is something parents should be aware of as well. Absolutely. And I think something else that we're starting to see as well is the additional funding that a lot of the school districts receive. So over the summer, we saw a lot of people be given enrichment programs. That's what they were calling kind of like their summer school. I think it's important for parents because, you know, sometimes I'll have parents and they're like, oh, we got this and, you know. I don't want to ask for too much. And and it's not, you know, it's what you're entitled to and, and the rights that you have. And that was something that may have been provided to all students. Yes. So it wasn't necessarily tailored to right. meet the unique needs of your child. It was just kind of this maybe computer program for reading intervention or something like that. Right. And you, your child has, you know, specific rights to be able to be provided a free and appropriate public education. And appropriate is where we're, we all deal with, right? What is appropriate? And that may have been appropriate for a you know, typical kiddo. And it doesn't mean that your child didn't make improvements, but there's other things that, you know, you are still entitled to and to ask for. And so I, I don't want parents, you know, when they get that pushback, you know, or, or, you know, maybe the district's not trying to make them feel guilty, but then a parent inevitably will. You know, there's no harm in asking, especially if you believe that your child regressed. And a lot of children did not make appropriate progress on their goals. And it's not just, well, you know, it is what it is. No, it's not. <laughs> we can make it better. That's yeah. Not- and we're seeing that argument a lot from schools saying, well, everyone was impacted by COVID and distance learning. Everybody mm-hmm. regressed. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Yeah. But the U.S. Department of Education has actually come out and many of the circuits across the United States have come out and said, no, that's not an excuse. Students on IEPs have a right to FAPE. The school districts have an obligation to provide FAPE. Mm -hmm. And they have certain goals in their IEP. If they are not making meaningful progress during this time, Mm -hmm. they are entitled to commence their education. It does not matter if every kid on IEP in your school district also regressed. And it also doesn't matter if every kid in the class, gen ed or otherwise, regressed mm-hmm. and struggled. These mm-hmm. students on IEPs have certain rights and protections. And none of those rights and protections were waived during COVID. In fact, many school districts, like Vicki mentioned, were receiving substantial additional funding for yeah. COVID specifically. And mm-hmm. many of them were supposed to use that funding during distance learning to provide these enrichment programs to make sure that students didn't regress. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of those programs didn't exist or yeah. they were provided to everybody and students mm-hmm. on IEPs were not able to access because they did not re- receive their additional supports. So, mm-hmm. you know, these excuses that we're seeing schools say are not appropriate excuses. Yeah, yeah. This is really powerful. And this is something I hear from parents a lot. You know, I teach an IEP class for parents monthly and I hear parents say, I mean, I talk about, you know, 
parent pitfalls and pitfalls that parents experience. And one of them is, you know, being too friendly and being so accommodating. And, you know, well, I understand my kid is, you know, hard to manage or, you know, I know everybody was going through a hard time. Um, What you're saying is those are not excuses and that really can hinder your advocacy for your child. Um, Oh, absolutely. And we can hold both spaces. We have space for both. We can acknowledge that it's been hard for everyone, but an individualized education plan or program meeting is Mm -hmm. about the individual child that is in front of you. And that's something that we have heard from a lot of parents is that, you know, you get that well-meaning, you know, APE teacher Mm -hmm. or just, you know, somebody else on the team saying, well, I have a kid with X, (laughs) right? And it's like, thank you for sharing but this is a completely different situation. And I think that even when we try to make it seem like everybody's been having a hard time, it comes off not good (laughs) for a lot of parents and it does inhibit their advocacy, especially if they're by themselves. Yeah, for sure. Right. Which is what we say. Don't IEP alone, alone, you know, definitely have someone with you, even if it's your regional center caseworker or if it's, you know, an advocate, a neighbor, any babysitter, anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Friend, someone. Um, So as we have parents who may be listening and they're thinking, wow, this sounds like it totally is relevant to my child. What would you guys recommend, uh, ladies recommend as uh, the next steps for a parent? if they are really considering uh, that compensatory education might be appropriate for their child? Well, the first step is that IEP meeting. So, you know, if you've already been back in person at least 30 days, we recommend having an IEP meeting to talk about how the student has been functioning during distance learning and how they're doing now that they've returned to in-person and gather as much information as possible and straight out ask, how the school, how the IEP team is planning on addressing regression, how they're planning on providing compensatory education. So that's step one. Find out if they're willing to play ball, so to speak. Gather that information. And, you know, one caution we would make is at these IEP meetings, we are seeing some teams that are saying, you know, considering the circumstances, you know, Sally actually is doing a lot, you know, so well, you know, or better than expected, or yeah, she regressed, but you know, now that she's back in person, she's, you know, back on her trajectory. Just because these things are said at that IEP meeting does not necessarily make them true. Without more evidence to support that statement, that statement is only a statement. So we recommend asking for work samples, asking for informal or formal data collection or assessments to be conducted because someone's statement that they think the student is now functioning okay really means nothing because what is their idea of okay? And is their perception kind of off considering a lot of these students are starting back in person at the beginning of the school year, which means they have new teachers, teachers that have never seen them before. So how can they compare them to how they were before COVID and how they were during COVID? It's very difficult to have that comparison if you weren't in both situations. Mm-hmm. Who is in all situations? The parent. The parent knows best. So if you do feel like what they're saying isn't really in line with how you feel your child has been functioning or should be functioning, then mm-hmm. that's a time to ask for more information and to possibly take that next step of maybe we need to be asking for alternative dispute resolution, going to due process, kind of taking that next step. And maybe a step two could also be, you know, having private assessments. You know, we're talking about 
you know, just the district potentially doing it. But I think the unique of this last year, so many parents were able to see how their children learned. And so, you know, in the last year and a half, we were advising, you know, listeners of our podcast to take data on the goals, right? A pre-COVID tip that we would always give was, you know, before going to an IEP meeting, go through the goals with your kiddo as best as you can and Mm -hmm. see, can they write their name with one to two prompts without, you know, a visual prompts or, you know, verbal prompt and really kind of get that that test work, that sample for yourself. Mm -hmm. Obviously the home is a different setting, yada, 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 but we would like these goals to be across all settings. So if your child is actually made progress on these goals, you as a parent should be able to see it. And I think the uniqueness of this last year has enabled parents to see it a heck of a lot more than they would have. So to help back that up, a mini step two before maybe going to an alternative dispute resolution, if you're able to be in the position to afford it, would be independent assessment. So private assessors assessing your child in these areas so that you have something of weight to bring to those ADRs. That's really great. I think having that data for parents just for themselves is really valuable, like you said. Because if it's a skill that the kid has learned, they should be able to do it across multiple environments. Absolutely. But then having the assessment data on top of that, I think, can really carry a lot of weight and help support parents, you know, requests in this area of compensatory education. When would a parent know if it's time to work with an attorney like yourself, when it's time to, okay, move forward with a due process claim, uh, complaint in regards to compensatory education services? That's a good question. You know, it's just the comfort level of the parent. Some Mm -hmm. parents, you know, something happens and then they're just angry, <laughs> right? So then they're Googling attorney. Sometimes it's just uh, another parent saying, this doesn't sound right, you know, but go ahead, Amanda. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I don't think there's a wrong time. I think that going along with what Vicki is saying, the comfort level, you know, we do want parents to keep in mind that there's a two-year statute of limitations. So we are now coming up on that two years Almost, you know, we get to March, we will be two years since the start of COVID. So if there were concerns before COVID, we have a small window only to address anything before COVID. And then certainly anything that's happened during the distance learning time, you know, you don't want to wait too long because then you can be closing your window of, you know, the amount of for your statute of limitations. So in looking at, you know, when certainly if you're feeling nervous and you feel like things aren't going well and you go to that IEP meeting, um, and of course you can have that IEP meeting with an attorney, you can bring them to that, you know, you don't have to wait for the IEP to bring in an attorney. But certainly if you get to that point and you start negotiating with the school district, that they start saying, you know, hey, we want to offer you these hours, but we're going to have you sign this. Mm-hmm. That's generally a big trigger point on when you should probably consult with an attorney because if the school is having you sign something, mm-hmm. you could be waiving claims and you could be leaving things on the table that you mm-hmm. your child could otherwise be receiving and maybe needs. Wow. So you don't want to miss those opportunities, parents. I hope you're listening here. You know, if it gets to a point where a school district or your IEP team is saying, yes, we'll provide this as long as you don't ask for this anymore, or, you know, you're waiving things. And that's definitely a time where you you may consider uh, 
contacting a special education attorney. Um, we have two wonderful ones here today. And then parents, again, if you're watching us live, feel free to add your questions to the comment section as we are wrapping up here in our topic, compensatory education. So another one of my final questions is, what are some of the options? I know you talked a little bit about this briefly in the beginning. What are some of the options that parents can access if they are, if the school is found negligible and the child does receive compensatory education services, what can that look like? So, yeah, so we had kind of outlined it could be in the form of educational services or it could be in the form of reimbursement. So educational services are just that. So any type of reading intervention. So you have some of these bigger companies like your Linda Mubels. Stowell Learning Center is another one that provides some form of educational therapy. If you needed to have additional speech and language services, occupational therapy services, special education for as much as we would want it to include, you know, punitive damages, which is kind of uh, money back to the parent for punishment or not the petitioner, um, that does not exist in special education. But we do see a lot of it. We are only able to, you know, a parent leaves work and, you know, the loss of wages and, you know, all these things that do happen to a lot of families. Unfortunately, the law does not indicate that we can receive anything for that. So we're really dealing with that type of educational service, or if the parent provided the services on their own, it would be a form of reimbursement. That is one of the ways that you will see parents receive a lump sum of money. It's not a lump sum because they went through this pain and suffering, like you would see in a personal injury case or car accident Mm -hmm. case, but it's well, we're setting aside this amount for you to get your own services for this reading intervention issue that you see or something like that. Mm-hmm. And just like services should be individualized, compensatory mm-hmm. education needs to be individualized as well. So even though we do see a lot of school districts offering tutoring type services, special mm-hmm. academic instruction as something that they offer for compensatory education, that's not always going to be appropriate for that student because you want to look at where was the loss, where was the regression. Academically might have been okay this year for some students, but the social, mental health, you know, occupational therapy, all of this might have, speech therapy might have been the areas that we regressed. We really want to look at each of the areas that regressed and work on getting that child back to that place. So it might be that we're adding additional speech therapy sessions, maybe the IEP says 30 minutes a week. So now we're going to do, you know, an hour a week, you know, so it can really be a number of things based on what that child needs. Some students are being placed in private schools or non-public schools because the regression has been so severe. And so reimbursement or a transfer to these schools can also be a form of commensurate education. It's not limited to like an hour by hour comparison we missed 20 hours over the course of the year. So we're going to give you 20 hours because again, going back to the bringing them back to where they should have been isn't necessarily going to work because we know that if a child misses 20 hours of speech therapy, not only are they not where they should have been, but they've regressed. So we need to get them back to the point where they started and then to the progress Mm -hmm. they should have made. 
And Amanda touched on something that I wanted to just elaborate on as well, because I had indicated a, a private company like Alinda Mubel. Compensatory education can be provided by the school district, like Amanda mentioned. Maybe we're adding another half hour into the IEP, or it can be done by a non-public agency. And that would just, that's just a fancy term for a private agency that is certified by the California Department of Education. So when you're looking at different types of companies, if they have a non-public agency designation, districts are more often likely to reimburse a parent if they go there or even provide the non-public contract with the non-public agency because there's only so many school hours in a day. So maybe the child on the weekend or after school. And so it just depends on the situation. Sometimes I like the school district to be providing the tutoring because it's with the teacher after school, easy peasy. Sometimes it needs to be a private agency because it needs to be that kind of one-to-one in the student's home to help with homework or whatever. Yeah. The wonderful options. I think that parents uh, hope that you're picking up on this, that there are just a variety of options because it's individualized, just like you said, just like the IEP process should be. One of my final questions, I'm going to say, one of my final questions is in regards to that, I was just going to touch on non-public agencies or non-public schools. I know that there are times where parents will say, my kid just can't learn at this public school. They've tried everything and my kid is just not learning. And you're saying that uh, potentially compensatory education services could be used in that regard. The school is obviously not able to provide this child with FAPE, but this private special education school agency is able to do that. You're saying that through compensatory education, possibly through the due process process, they may have access to that or reimbursement for that? Yes, because, you know, when we look at what the student should be entitled to for compensatory education, if we add that to the already existing IEP, there's only so many hours in the day. It may not be possible for that student to receive all of that at the public school because there's not that many hours. If the student were to go to a private school that is designed for kids with special needs or a non-public school, they may be able to serve the needs of the student, get them back to where they should have been without the need for extended hours in the school day, without their needing, you know, we see for middle school and high school students, schools will say, okay, well, we'll give you the commensurate education during the school day, but it's going to take the form as an elective. Well, that's punitive for the child. Then they're not allowed to have an elective that's discriminatory for the student with the disability because they should have a right to an elective. So we don't want to take that away. We don't want to cram their day and we don't want them to have an extended day, having to have hours after the school or on the weekend, summer, right? So if we can build a program that's going to meet all their needs at another school, then that can be appropriate, one, for the IEP team to offer, but then certainly through a negotiation, through a settlement agreement, it can either take the form of the school district funding directly or parents receiving reimbursement. That's so great. Well, this has just been wonderful. I'd love for you guys to share more. If we have parents who are having questions, they are maybe at this space where they're looking to work with an attorney, how can they contact you and and tell us more about what you guys are doing in your company? Yeah, so we're Inclusive Education Project. We are a nonprofit and we actually have a couple different departments. So one of them obviously is the legal branch where Amanda and I provide yearly services to clients where we're attending IEP meetings and just kind of have a little bit more control, if you will, of, you know, are we filing? Are we not? Sometimes the parents want to do an ADR. And then the other service that we offer is the filing, just the straight up filing of a complaint. 
And then another department of our nonprofit is the Inclusive Education Project podcast. As you can tell, Amanda and I love to talk. And so we uh, started a podcast uh, four years ago and we discuss various topics. So we do tips and tricks, kind of similar to what we're talking about today. Sometimes we'll have guests on and, and we've just, we've learned so much and have grown so much because there's only so much time for us in our lives to know everything about special education. And although we're very involved, it's so refreshing to have people that are passionate, just like you, Crystal, to be able to talk to. So those are the different kind of ways. And Amanda, you want to uh, say where, how they can contact us? Yeah, so you can go to our website, www.inclusiveeducationproject.org, and there is a contact where we get it and we can give you a call to set up a consultation. We also receive messages on our Instagram, our Facebook. We have a Facebook group as well, all Mm -hmm. under Inclusive Education Project. And we do provide both what we call pro bono and low bono legal aid. So for those families that do qualify, we are able to provide uh, pro bono services, as well as our low bono is, is low cost services for the families that don't qualify for pro bono. It's all flat rate fees to provide services, both at IEP meetings and filing due process complaints. And then you can also give us a call um, at 714-899-3330. We're always willing to, you know, set aside a time to do a consultation, talk with you. And, you know, if you're interested in just learning more tips, you know, follow us on Instagram, listen to our podcast, you know, as much as that's not straight legal advice, it's not the same as hiring an attorney. We do try to provide as much information for the families as possible. This is wonderful. You guys are such a valuable resource to families. I would ask if you are supporting families throughout the state or do you have a a special area? Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah. So throughout the state, pre-COVID, we went throughout the state. um, And obviously post-COVID, it's just been so much easier for us to actually attend IEP meetings virtually. Yeah. So all throughout the state of California, we do service. Awesome. All right, families. So again, our topic today has been compensatory education. Where are we now? And it sounds as though that uh, there are many of us as special needs parents who may have children who have regressed to the degree that compensatory education services may be an area to consider. Uh, And we've talking about this with your IEP team. Just, you know, flat out asking them if what are they going to do in regards to compensatory education for your child? Um, Also, potentially having resolution meetings that might be able to help in resolving that. And then lastly, of course, you always can access a special education attorney like Amanda or Vicki, who can help you along your journey there in regards to comp ed. So again, ladies, thank you so much for being here. I really value your time and what you offer to families. Thank you, Crystal. Thank you for having us.